Welcome, friends, to the Rooms and Reckonings podcast. This is an acting podcast where we will be taking time to discuss different books surrounding theater theory, acting theory, technique, anything we can. And I want to welcome you to our very first show. And I am so happy to say that our first guest on our podcast is a very dear friend of mine, uh, an extremely talented actor, one of the hardest working guys I know out there, uh, David Huynh, who I had the pleasure of going to graduate school with and who has been sort of a bomb-ass actor and hustler since then. Uh, but I want to give David a second to talk a little bit about himself and introduce himself. And David, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, dude. I mean, whenever you asked how could I not um so yeah I'm a Raysian Cajun Asian I'm born and raised in Lafayette Louisiana I went to undergrad in the University of Louisiana and then I went to grad school with Patrick at the University of Houston and I've been kind of kicking around the country with a home base in New York since it's a weird time now with COVID-19 but you know it was a good chance to dig out this old book and kind of get back to the fundamentals so thanks for asking me to jump back in. Of course, of course. And actually, I um, want to introduce us to the book that we're going to be talking about, Method or Madness by Robert Lewis. Uh, it was published back in the 1950s, um, 1958, and it is based on lectures that Robert Lewis gave in 1957, a series of eight lectures. Now, David, when I approached you about being on this podcast, you... I asked you what book you want to talk about, and without hesitation, you were like, Method or Madness, let's talk about this one. Uh, so I just want to ask you why the passion about this book, why did you choose this one? So you know, but for our dear listeners at home, whenever we got accepted into the University of Houston, we got this sprawling like 200-item reading list. And it was daunting. Um, there were a lot of books there that I had never even heard of by a lot of writers that I hadn't even heard of. And pretty much full compilations, uh, the full body of work from some playwrights. So it was hard to get through that. But I remember this always sticking out in my memory because it wasn't very abstract. It didn't rely on terminology that was so foreign to me. It just felt like a really grounded way of looking at acting. I love that Robert Lewis comes out and says, you know, there's not one right way to do it. And Stanislavski's method is not the end-all be-all. But here's a way to think about your work with keeping a lot of different things in balance and keeping a lot of different things in mind. Yeah, that was actually something that struck me about it because David and I were in the same class in graduate school. So you and I um, both got that monster reading list. And, you know, when you're kind of to borrow a term from our teacher, drinking from the fire hose. Oh, yes. Um, a lot of the information can... I know for me, a lot of the information felt like it washed over a little bit at times. But just rediscovering this book, it was really interesting to see how critical Robert Lewis was of the quote-unquote method. This is a podcast, so you can't see me doing the quotation fingers. But the method that was prevalent at the time, which was associated a lot with mumbling, with really, you got to feel it and the form and, you know, this is all that. And he was really trying to use this book to dispel those myths, which I really enjoyed reading about on this this pass through this this uh, reacquaintance with it. So I think I think that makes it one. I think it makes it a great book to look at to just kick off this podcast. So I want to thank you for the choice of this book. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so just to jump in, one the thing about this book, for those of you who haven't read this book, uh, for those of you listening out there, um, it is broken up into eight separate lectures. And the copy that I have, and I'm assuming that most people will have, is... Uh, it got an intro from Harold Clerman. Yep, that's the same one I got too. Uh, there's a Harold Clerman intro as well. 
Um, and if I talk about, or if David or I mention any names or plays or things that you're just like, what the f are you talking about? Please look them up. I highly encourage you to look them up. Uh, please, 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 because we won't have time to talk about them. And some things we'll mention, and you might just be like, what? So anyway, uh, now, of these lectures, I, I, what I'd love to do is go through each one and just highlight one or two things you think a person should take away from each one. Um, and... Then I'm going to ask you a very important question, which is, if you were a teacher, which lecture would you assign to your class? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, this podcast is not just for actors. It's also for people teaching actors. It's, it's really important. So let's just start off with the first one. If those of you hear paper rustling around or anything like that, I am currently in my closet with my notebook. So sorry, but this proves, the rustling of paper proves that we did work on this. <laughs> <laughs> this is doing theater work in 2020 in the world of covid yeah exactly <laughs> um so so david uh lecture the first one first lecture what do you think is one or two if you had to choose more than one what do you think are two one or two things that people should take away from that like what's something you would want to lift up or highlight in that first lecture so there are eight lectures, and the first one is background, which is essentially Robert Lewis giving us a background on what the method is, where it came from, how it came to America, and kind of what spurred him to hold these series of lectures. And I think a big reason for him was that there was a lot of confusion. Like you were saying, there were a lot of people that said, the form. I'm going to do what's true, what's right, and what feels good which led to a lot of performances that didn't really extend past, you know, the first row of seats. So rather than the misconception that it's all about internal technique, he wanted to remind people that there's an external technique as well. So Stanislavski, the great granddaddy of like Western actor training, came out with the book An Actor Prepares. And then 13 years later, a book called building a character comes out. So the first one is like focusing. It, oh yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. He calls it like, he switches back and forth. I feel like I remember Lewis switching back and forth while he's talking through these lectures. And sometimes he calls it building a character and sometimes he calls it creating a character. But I'm pretty sure he means building a character. Right. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I totally get it. There's a 13 year gap. And in that time, because we only had one half of what Stanislavski's method was, a lot of people thought, oh, I should focus on the internal. So I'm going to do what's true, what's right, and what feels good. But we forget, I mean, I studied with the Moscow Art Theater, and at the time, that 13-year gap, Stanislavski was doing so much research. He was watching as much theater as he could. He was working with the resident company of the Moscow Art Theater. He was doing you know, stuff that you do in the early 20th century. He was experimenting with electric currents through our muscles to see, like, how do you measure impulse? So it took time for him to publish the second book because, I mean, he didn't even want to publish a book because he felt like it would be too definite if he did, but he wanted to make sure that he gave it the due attention that it deserved. Yeah, that, that fact that he didn't want to set it down in stone is something that Lewis really goes back to a lot in the book, saying the idea that these uh, that these systems are finite or they're 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 set in stone um, was something that Stanislavski didn't appreciate. And they mention his uh, one of his most prized examples, Michael Chekhov, who. Stanislavski would be like, that guy's doing my method. And Chekhov's like, I'm just kind of like doing what I know, but still experimenting, you know. Um, the the thing that I really appreciate, and I, I think it is in the first lecture, but when Stanislavski is talking about the uh, different, yeah, it's in the first lecture. He's talking about the different uh, groups of people, the... Um, Things like giddy misconceivers, who are people who are like, I know the method, but really they just took like a class and then started teaching some <laughs> workshops. And then um, the true believers, who are like the dogmatic fanatics who believe that they hold the key. And then the 
uh, oh, the angry knockers, he calls them, um, who are the people who feel like they're left out. They feel really aggrieved by the method and uh, like they're, you know, and they, they just sort of it all over it. And then the uh, and then the last group, the fourth group, which is people who are just curious about technique, like intellectually curious actors. And that's the people that Lewis wanted to grow with these lectures. And I, I think that's something that's that's actually a, a pretty big tenant of this of Rooms and Reckonings of this podcast. No, totally. I think to be a well-rounded artist, you can't just subscribe to one technique. There's so much out in the world. And to kind of pigeonhole yourself like that is kind of reductive, you know? And I, I love this quote that he included by Martha Graham. Technique is a guide. It is there if, when, and as you need it. So even this person that is spending so much time talking about technique, even technique is not the end-all be-all. Like if you can do something natively, do it. As in, you know, Michael Chekhov doing his thing. But if you have difficulties or struggles or something's just not working quite right, the technique is there to help. It frees the spirit is the quote. Yeah, and that's such a great, like, putting it in really really succinct words. And, and that's something that, again, Lewis seems to do a lot through this, is using quotes from other people, even Stanislavski himself, to be like, I'm not making this up. Like, this is, I got people backing me up on this. <laughs> and it's also like, it helps that he's super funny. Oh, like, yeah. Like, I was cracking up at some of his jokes, mm -hmm. which, you know, I remember like, I don't remember the title of the book, but the one by Rich Boleslavsky and like the creature, quote unquote, that he mm -hmm. takes under his wing. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, this is a dance book. Mm -hmm. And it's also like hella problematic. Yep. But this, I like, I really enjoyed it. I, I found that he was a very open-minded person. There are some things, some terms that he uses and some modes of thinking that I think are integrated that are unique to that time. Mm -hmm. But generally, like, I think I, I trust his taste. I like his taste. There's another quote that I, I just loved. Um, the rules can all be broken, but it is wise to know what you're breaking. So it's like, you know, you can't be counterculture if you don't know what the culture is, you know? And yeah. I think it goes back into being a well-rounded artist. You just got to, if you're going to break something, be artistic about it. Yeah. Because if you're not, then I think it's, you're just going to be general and vague. Yeah. that's And I think that's an example that is set by a lot of great artists throughout history. Um, those people who, like, the reason that they're known in a particular form is because they knew the form and then they started bending rules and breaking rules. Um, and that's that's really that's really cool. But the reason they were able to break and bend those rules is because they understood that form, uh, which form is a great lecture. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that lecture as we go. Um, one, one like really basic lesson that I enjoyed, cause your, your description of this sort of background and, um, the, uh, Lewis laying the foundation for everything in this first lecture, I think is really, is great. I think that'll give people a really great idea of the substance of this, of this first lecture and why he started it this way. Um, one thing, uh, a very tiny lesson that stuck out to me was this idea just from an acting perspective that we shouldn't see your technique. Mm. And that, I mean, that's something that I, I'm sure plagues a lot of artists. I know it has affected me throughout my training. I know I've heard it from people. Um, well, but I mean, it, it goes both ways, right? I mean, we both saw each other's technique for two straight years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we know how that was. <laughs> Which is, you know... Like, we oh, were... brother. <laughs> Which we, you know, we were in a two-year workshop essentially, which is which is where you should see it. But, but you know, like it's 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 like seeing it there is is one thing, but but on the stage is 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 another, or, or in that performance, and and that idea of having it so, like just keeping that in mind of no matter how much I'm studying or what I'm studying, if I'm up there performing, you know, in an audition or at a you know, in a show or something like that, if my technique is showing, that I think is a big difference between an actor and an artist. Just that's just my opinion. I don't know if that I don't necessarily I'm not speaking for Lewis there. 
but that's a that's a big difference. And and I've seen you on stage since grad school and during grad school. Oh, thank God. And there, <laughs> but your portrayal of uh, Gloucester in uh, Henry VI Part Three, um, and your uh, the the play that you did, Man Alive. I'm forgetting the name. Um, the play that you did on that stage, but where the stage curtain was closed and you said, and the, uh, declaration of independence, the Vietnamese declaration of independence was, was spoken. Yes. Well, the trial of the Catonsville nine yes. with transport group. Yes. Thank you. Um, I, like I've seen you on stage and I, and I've worked with you since grad school and there's plenty of time things I can point to where I'm like, that's he's not doing his technique there. He's doing like he's doing the thing. He's doing it, which is important. Um, which is why I have so much respect for you as an artist. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, but I think that's. I, a... I also love that like so many people that went to UH use that term. He's doing the thing. Yeah, they're doing yeah. the thing. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what is the thing? Yeah, what is? I, I don't know. But I, they're, they're doing it. <laughs> well, hey, Robert Lewis says he doesn't care what you call it. You know, call it spinach for all he cares, as long as you're doing yeah, it. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. So. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add about the first lecture? I just want to share an anecdote. Um, so I had a teacher who told me this great story, and it goes hand in hand with ro what Robert Lewis is saying about technique and showing your technique and just being as an artist. And he had this fantastic dancer who was teaching him movement. And this this dancer worked professionally all over the world and moved beautifully, danced beautifully, was a vibrant person and had a great physical life. But one day they decided to try to break down how they were walking, like really think about the way they were walking. And as they tried to do that walking down the stairs, they fell and broke both their legs. So I'm just thinking about like, just sometimes it's showing your technique, thinking too much about the technique, obsessing about technique, let it be. If you know how to walk, walk. That's perfect, man. That's such a great, that's such a great uh, connection to what's happening here. Um, there's a time for breaking down things, and there's a time for just being, and I think that's that's perfect. That's great. Awesome. Okay, so moving forward, because we got seven lectures, seven more lectures to cover, and only so much time. Uh, the next lecture I want to talk about is, well, the second one. Okay, so the second lecture titled The Method Itself. So, one or two things that you think someone should take away from this. What, what would you like to highlight? I love that step one is work on oneself. And the quote in the book is, the pedal supports the whole edifice. So no matter who you are, where you come from, what your circumstances are, you need to work on yourself as a human being so that you have a deep well to draw from. And I just love that. Like you can pretend all you want about seeing a human injustice or experiencing love on stage, but there's a difference between someone really just like batting for the fences and just trying to figure it out versus someone who has just that that little bit of lived in experience and then also i i'm a big fan when acting and theater is bold and vibrant i'm a big believer in the actor as an athlete idea so i just love that the first step is work on oneself yeah that is that's that's such a great takeaway from that because whether an actor is attacking something from the internal or the external when they are dealing with a character if you focus too much on one it can create issues and this is a great example of something where you can focus on the internal to support the external if you need it because you're creating a great internal base to support this great structure um, because if you don't have that sort of well to choose from, the form's going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And if you do have this awesome form or this awesome well of the internal to to um, express, but your form is, you know, crap, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how expressive you are. If people, if you know, if the audience can't see it or hear it, 
then it doesn't matter. Yeah. It didn't happen. Yeah, it's it's a different deal when it's um when you're presenting something because we don't as much as we try to be true or real, we don't really go to the theater or watch film and television to see something real. Like there's always going to be that understanding that it's on some level pretend. I also really liked so there's some historical background here as to how the method came to be and how it was helped um, how some people helped break it down. He talks about how Stella Adler and Harold Klerman go to Paris and spend several weeks with Stanislavski, and they create a chart encompassing the whole method. And for me, I think so much of theater is lineage, and I just love the idea that like we can trace... I In some ways, I feel like we can all trace, as American actors, we can all kind of trace our pathways to Stanislavski. Mm-hmm. And I just love that, you know, like, if you go to the Stella Adler School of Acting, then... You know, there's a direct link there. But because we studied at University of Houston, where Bob Hobbs, you know, influenced Jack Young, Bob Hobbs worked with Robert Lewis. And so Robert Lewis has a connection to Stanislavski. So in a way, like there's a there's a connection there as well. That idea of a history, especially for something as I'm going to try to use the right word, ephemeral <laughs> as theater, um, where, you know, um, Lewis talks about this in the book. Sculpture is, you know, it's there. You, 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 you do it, and the artist creates it, and the sculpture exists for as long as it does, you know. But we can look at sculptures from 100, 200, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. Architecture, uh, uh, painting, those are things that remain, but with theater and i would argue even with our age of recording and in our current predicament um it is still a one-time experience i mean i had the opportunity to watch the national theater um uh, presentations of frankenstein with benedict cumberbatch so good and yeah really so many good things so many good things about that and and watching it was was fantastic but comparing that to the people who are actually in the room experiencing that, I know my own personal experience was less mm-hmm. than what they experienced, whether good or bad, you know? <laughs> there's something in the air. I mean, there's there's something electric when it's, you know, human bodies in front of you going through this shared storytelling. Yeah. And so so this, it relates back to your point, I think, of the chart being a a guidebook a, a map whether or not people believe in the you of the usefulness of the method but it is something that we can trace our acting technique lineage back to um which i think is it, that's that's something that's really special and actually that's the thing i chose as well for this lecture was that chart i think I mean, out of context, without the explanations from Lewis, some of those terms are going to be real confusing. Um, but the the ability to look at that chart is, I mean, I want to make a photocopy of it and just have it somewhere that I can always just look at it. <laughs> oh, totally. And I think it's also important to note that in the book, he mentions that I'm just going to give a cursory explanation of these terms on the chart we're pulling from Stanislavski's two books and actor prepares and building a character. So this book again is really kind of like a companion piece to those two tomes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's the thing about this is this is a book that was built to, it seems to me, give a deeper dive or to encourage people to do a deeper dive into the method and not just, not just freaking read about it, but to actually try it, to experiment, to not be a giddy misconceiver, because I'm sure there were, I guarantee there were some people in those audiences who, for all their good intentions of becoming a curious, you know, uh, you know, that intellect being a, a curious intellectual, they ended up being giddy misconceivers. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but that's th- that that overview, I think, is one of the quickest and clearest ways for someone to get introduced to the structure of the method in that second lecture. 
And it also makes me think, like, how romantic it must have been to be an actor in that time when they were figuring that out, to be in the room, to be part of those experiments, those productions, those workshops. Mm -hmm. I think about that all the time. Like, what if we had been on the ground floor of the group theater in New York City or the Moscow Art Theater when they were figuring this out? Because it was kind of, I mean, when they did, when the Moscow Art Theater did that production of Anton Chekhov's The Seagull using the technique that Stanislavski was trying to put together, it changed performing arts up to that point. And it certainly infected the rest of the world. Um, I mean, we, I mean, we're we still debating and then we're having this podcast now, you know. Did they ever expect that what they were penning would become this long-standing legacy? Probably not. I, 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 I mean, I, you know, I didn't know Stanislavski personally. I, I may be older than you, but I'm not that old. But like... Uh, the, <laughs> You know, I think if the motivation of Stanislavski was to create something that was going to go down in history and people would talk about for 100 years, I don't think we would be talking about it because his motivations would have been corrupted a bit. Um, That I think when artists approach the work and and I, I like I would like to relate that to our own work as actors. I think if we approach something with the idea that we're going to change the face of theater or, you know, do something really special so that people will continue talking about it. I think those efforts lots of times fail. But if you look at someone like, I mean, I can really only think of musicals for the moment, but if you look at someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda or Jonathan Larson, who created works that I, I, that lead me to believe they were just doing their work in the purest form for the sake of the work, um, for the sake of the art not to become legends in the musical theater pantheon. Um, But, I mean, you can point, and you can point to people probably in every art form who, I I mean, maybe this is my naivete, but, like, that did this work because they wanted to make great art, not because they wanted to create something that would just make them famous. I think about that with Shakespeare or painters like George Thoreau. Mm -hmm. Their contemporaries were much more popular and considered better writers. But for whatever reason, their works have this spark that have kept them alive for centuries. Yeah, that's that's great. Awesome. So, second lecture, done. Unless you have something else you'd like to add about it. No, man, I'm Gucci. Yeah. And, and, (laughs) And for those of you listening... Um, just keep in mind, these are brief, brief overviews. Now, this book is not very long. It's only 165 pages. It's a pretty easy read. Um, David and I both took notes on this. Uh, we worked for a little while to kind of suss out as much as we could. We worked independently. We didn't really, we didn't, we have not talked about this book, um, before now, but it it is a pretty quick read and, these are sort of teasers of these lectures. We want these to maybe give you some information, but also to inspire you to uh, pick up this book and take the good from it. Because we're going to talk about some of the bad later. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We'll talk about some of the problems that this book uh, does hold, and that is going to be something that happens in every single one of these conversations. Um, You know, this book was written, oh man, math, uh, 60 years ago. Uh, over 60 years ago and and things have changed and actually that that reminds me i wanted to ask you when you were talking about being in the room at the moscow art theater and and being there when these people were knowingly or unknowingly changing the face of theater do you think that is something that is possible now do you see the face of theater changing in america again part of the reason for this podcast is to highlight the things of these books that we can take that good without it being completely, oh, these were a bunch of books who that were written and experimented by by mostly white Western dudes, right? Do you think there's a possibility that America, that the face of American theaters could change, not even is changing, but could change with greater social and cultural 
awareness and a willingness of actors to decolonize our our theories. That's a huge conversation. <laughs> Great. I, I think to start off, the face of American theater is going to change just because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And that's going to affect things for a very long time until a vaccine is discovered. And then after that, we're going to have to safeguard against future viral outbreaks. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how that alone is going to change things. I think right now we also need to reckon with how the capitalist consumer culture influences theater and arts in America. Because right now I think a lot of people don't have the opportunities to tell the stories that they need to or don't feel empowered to be a part of the art form. Which is why we get a lot of critiques that theater programs or the art itself is so white. But I also have faith in the rise of writers of all genders, different races, different backgrounds, that we're going to enter into a rich time of new works. And I just hope that with these new works that make room for all of these different actors, that they also kind of start to explore classical works and really stretch themselves. I'm seeing a trend where plays and artistic leaders want something that's more real, i.e., if we're going to do a play about Korean people, we want to find as many Korean people as possible, which is great. But I also don't want a generation of actors to only see themselves in Korean plays. It breaks my heart when I see students of color that are in these great theater programs thinking that they can't lead a Shakespearean show. So I think there's going to be, I think a big boon to decolonizing actor training in America will be empowering students of all backgrounds to be able to take on these beautiful pieces of art. The question of will there be a maverick that changes the art form, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm a little pessimistic of things because of how much money influences things. I mean, this economic shutdown has taken a lot of theater companies down to their knees and we're in danger of losing a lot of venues and a lot of artistic homes for our friends across the country. And I think right now we all need to reckon with what place does theater hold in our lives, our society, and how do we save it or how do we change it so that theater starts to be seen and starts to act more as an essential service that reaches out to the communities that it needs to serve. I know it's a larger conversation. I really value or I really appreciate you answering that question in such a with such clarity, um, even in a shorter amount of time than is necessarily needed for the whole thing. I mean, you could do a whole friggin' podcast on just that question. You oh, could do totally. a whole season of a podcast just on that question. <laughs> get Joe Hodge on that. Get Ntaki Garrett. Like, get everyone on that because, like, that's a, that's a huge question. Yeah, yeah. And actually, one thing, because of the need to make sure that people know there's more representation out there that is needed in from top to bottom in theater... Um, I think at the end of this podcast, what I'm going to do is uh, I would uh, I would like our listeners to keep listening beyond our conversation, because what I will do is pick an artist, could be an actor, playwright, producer, director, artistic director, whatever. And I'm going to mention that person. And I would love our podcast listeners to look that person up and see what that person is doing. Um, It could be a name, could be a play, could be a theater company. Um, and David, I know I'm going to give, I, I love at the end for you to, you know, do a little self-promotion as well for the things that you're working oh, you on. Cause it. I know you've got like <laughs> a billion irons in a fire, uh, but we got more to cover. So let's move on to the third lecture. All right. So, uh, what, what do you want to, what do you want to talk about with this one? All right. Section three, lecture three, attitudes toward the method. I, I just love how, how much of a Stanislavski fanboy this guy is. Like he loves the art. You can really tell that. And so he's, but he understands like, oh, this is why you feel this certain way about 
the method, quote unquote, because of like, frankly, stereotypes of what the method was at the time. But I just love this quote that I wrote down. Two aspects to the way techniques are applied. Unconscious guide means creating on stage. Conscious study is for workshops or learning apart. So it's like what we were talking about before, but there's two separate ways to think about this. We don't want to see your technique. Ideally, an actor, an artist will in intuitively create their role and work in the moment and be available and present with both the audience themselves and their partner. But it's okay to show your technique whenever you're working in a controlled environment, when you're studying to grow yourself as an actor. And I just love that he acknowledges that there's a time and place for both, like we were talking about earlier, and that it should be done, a performance should be done in the heat of creation, as, as he says in the book. I just love that, that, you know, if you think about acting while you're acting, you're not acting. So think of, and, and I know that we've talked about this in grad school, where we were just having this hell of a time really wrapping our head around this acting methodology that we were being taught at the University of Houston. And someone came up with the idea that the technique that we were learning was just the scaffolding. You know, it just builds the bare bones to like how to approach the work or how to see a role. And when we're on stage, when we're in it, you know, that structure just gives us the freedom to like take a leap and start soaring. Yeah, that is, I, I don't remember who said that the first time, but I remember us talking about it for like the next six classes. <laughs> it's like it was constantly <laughs> mentioned after that. It was like, we came up with this term. It's awesome. Let's keep using it. Um, you know, it's funny that you highlight that part of the lecture because once again, that is literally the same thing I highlighted. Like, Hell yeah. That it's like is, we went to grad school together or something. <laughs> but that, that idea that when you're like, you can't think about your technique when you're doing it. I, I loved that he used the piano player as, or the pianist, not piano player, the pianist as an example. And I, and he uses music a lot. And so did, so did Stanislavski. Stanislavski was obviously obsessed with music. Um, but this idea that when a pianist is doing a run in the middle of a uh, Beethoven concerto, the, the person can't think oh, now I'm going to put my finger under here and then put it here and then I use my middle finger because if the person does that, they're screwed. They are mm -hmm. not going to be able to uh, figure that out. So the audience it, is going to be pissed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, my God, yeah. Those, I mean, music audiences are just, those. they are killer. I have mm -hmm. heard, I've seen and heard a lot of YouTube videos that the like the musician ends or the opera ends and there's literally people in the audience like boo <laughs> it's crazy Jeez, at least they're honest yeah yeah but um but just going back to that that i mean i think we have all felt it and if you haven't felt it uh for those of you listening if you haven't felt this if you keep working on your technique in the classroom in the workshop you will eventually feel this on stage. You'll be on stage and you will, or you'll be in a rehearsal and you will be, for lack of a better term, immersed in the art and you will feel a sense of creation. I, I promise you. Uh, there's a Muhammad Ali quote. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw it up. But essentially the quote says, the fight isn't won under the lights with the crowd cheering. The fight is won in the gym when you're alone. Mm. So it's that idea of, because you know Muhammad Ali was not thinking, oh, I'm going to make a right here and I'm going to uppercut here. He was naturally doing it. He was. It was so ingrained in him to be a fighter that, if he had taken that split second to think, he's wasting that time that he would use to become, you know, one of the greatest athletes that ever walked this planet. I mean, if you if you look at a boxing match, they move so fast. Oh my it's god! Scary. Oh my god! <laughs> it's crazy. And they can't, you're you're totally right. It has to be ingrained. It has to be muscle memory. It has to be. You have to do it quicker than you can think. 
Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to get socked in the face with 220 pounds of pressure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if it was someone like me, then, you know, bye bye face. (laughs) I think that's most people. It's like that scene in The Hangover when Mike Tyson just, like, knocks him out. Oh, my God. One shot. Most of us would be just out. (laughs) Yeah, just done. Well, the... And and it sounds like a daunting task, but it, that's I think that's not a bad thing. If in, uh, uh, theater, I think, and acting in particular, but it's not it's not solely acting. But there's a lot of aspects of theater that people look at and they're just like, yeah, I can do that and whatever. You know, that's easy. It's hard to look at a ballet or to hear a violin player, uh, a violinist. Um, or or to well art can suffer under this too but let's say see a sculpture <laughs> see a rodan sculpture and think oh yeah i can totally do that that's easy there's something inherent about being on stage and acting that a lot of people think oh i can totally do that but the reason i think a lot of people have the ability to say that is because of the amount of artistry that they see the artistry looks so effortless that people mm-hmm. think, oh, it's easy. And I think that's true of all artistry. The reason, well, uh, I'd be interested in your opinion on this. Do you think the reason that people are great artists is because they make it look easy? That's a really good question. And I, it's, and again, like this is, it's hard being an arbiter of what is and isn't art and what is, is or what is and isn't great art. But I mean, I think of John Lennon from the Beatles man was not the best guitar player on the planet but uh, you know I'll be damned if someone says that he's not an artist with the stuff that he wrote but I think I think a part of it is that ease um because again if if you're showing your technique on some level you're struggling with it and if you're struggling with it it's going to garble whatever you're trying to do so we don't see many of the artists that are really struggling at something because if it's a musician like they'll make mistakes while they play or sing if it's a sculptor from a certain period you know there will be imperfections in their sculpture or even integral weaknesses that wouldn't let it survive to this age and if it's in an actor then we see it and it'll just read false to us so i think a part of the ease is that it allows them to communicate whatever they want to communicate and we take it and we can do with it as we will but if it's not easy, then it, it some of it will get lost in translation. Oh, that I love that answer. Just <laughs> chef's kiss to that answer. So good, so good. Um, all right, let let's uh, uh, let's move on to the fourth lecture. Um, unless there's something you want to add. I just want to get back to. So there's this big talk in this one about the inside, the internal versus the external, and I just love this statement that he calls some acting emotionalism, thin emotion. It's a self-indulgence closer related to pathology than art. And I just love that because I, I think about this class that I was taking with Nadia Bowers and Corey Stoll, and they were talking about effort and tension and how uncomfortable it is when you're watching an actor actually experience the emotions that their characters are supposed to go through. When I was younger, I idolized Daniel Day-Lewis because I loved his work. And I saw this story about how he was playing Hamlet and he saw the ghost of his actual father on stage and just broke down. And when I was younger, I was like, oh my God, that must have been amazing to see how, how raw. But then as I'm getting older and I'm realizing that's not sustainable, one, as an artist. Two, you cheat your audience out of a play and then three, God, how uncomfortable the entire time, how oppressing that must have felt. Because when we, I think when we really feel something on stage, when we feel those genuine emotions, maybe what we're feeling isn't exactly reading the way we think it is. But then I also think that there's a wall that goes up that makes it hard for an audience to connect with us. So there's there's that with with a understanding of the internal and external, I think that that leaves it the distance that the audience needs to kind of slip themselves into our performance and really receive what we're trying to give them and really put them in what we're showing them. Awesome. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm actually glad you brought up Daniel Day-Lewis because it makes me think of him. He's accused of being a method actor all the time. I've, I've heard a lot of people say it. And um, 
The big one, though, is Jared Leto. A lot of people say Jared, they point to Jared Leto and they're just like, he's a method actor, He's but he sucks. I mean, I know a lot of people who do have, I mean, well, I don't know if I know a lot. I know people who respect him as an actor. I won't say a lot of people or who respect his performances. Let's say that, not him as an actor, but his some of his performances. But just so people know, sending like dead rats or pig heads to your ensemble or being generally like genuinely just a dick is not method acting that is not i mean not as i read it uh, that that is that that immersion i can understand an, a character who i mean I, i've done this with accents or dialects if i have to do an accent or a dialect sometimes I just am like, once I get to a certain point leading up to going out on stage, I'm like, I'll just start speaking in the dialect or the accent because it's a technical thing that I'm like, all right, you know, I got to do that. And you remember, David, I'm not like the most amazing with dialects, but like the, the idea that someone would be their character off stage to the point where they're abusive towards their ensemble and to their team is not method acting. So anybody who says Jared Leto's a method actor, they they're they're wrong because of the misinformation about the he's method. He's a method cultist, this weird cult that's kind of propped up around it. But he's not really Ooh. a method actor. Nice. Um, you know, he did not pull that with Viola Davis on Suicide Squad because Viola Davis would have snapped him in two. Oh yeah. But also, I think that goes back to like this issue of. I think that he understood the amount of star power that he had. And it was a calculated move on his part to kind of drum up PR and attention for the movie. Mm -hmm. So he inflicted these things onto his ensemble members. And I just think that I don't think that there was any artistry in that. I think that was a very calculated PR move. Oh, nice. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't think I, of it from that perspective, but that's uh, that's a really good point. But also, I totally agree. There's never an excuse to inflict your process onto someone else. Yeah, that's that's messed up. Well, no, it it kills trust. I mean, we're supposed to be building this like very. I mean, if we're, I mean, you know, some of the like I think of, I think of the scene with Gloucester and Edgar, but Edgar is poor Tom, and Gloucester doesn't know that his son is there, and like, you know, Edgar is seeing his father fallen from grace, and it's storming. And there's like this beautiful reconciliation between them. But if I'm playing Edgar and the guy playing Gloucester is actually abusive to me because earlier in the play, Gloucester sends the dogs after his son, that would destroy the trust necessary for us to build that reconciliation later. It's it's pretend, mm -hmm. you know, and we got to respect the room and we got to respect each other because we're we're building something together yeah that's a great point and uh if anyone listening doesn't know who gloucester and edgar are that is from king lear from shakespeare um one yeah, one of the, i think his best yeah play. um one yeah uh arguably his best i can't wait to play lear you know five years ago i would have say i would have said i needed 20 years but considering how gray my beard is now i probably only need like five years before i can play lear <laughs> <laughs> it, it suits you. You look good with all that. Oh, gray. thank you, thank you. <laughs> all right, awesome. So uh, let's move forward. Uh, we have three down. Uh, math, five to go. Um, so <laughs> fourth lecture titled "Method Fetishes." Uh, so uh, what what's title? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, what's something you'd like to talk about in this one? I love how much humility he brings into this talk. He talks about directing My Hearts in the Highlands, this play that he did on Broadway, um, I think in the 50s, and how he was so obsessed with being right and fearful of making a mistake that they had finished rehearsal, like blocking the show and everything. He had set everything that he could in the first week of rehearsal, and he had like three or four weeks left. And so he was like, uh, what do I do? So he played games and like, because there were a lot of kids, they had an Easter egg hunt <laughs> at the theater that they were yeah. at. And I just think like, well, we talk about internal and external. He was recognizing that he kind of fetishized the second half of Stanislavski's stuff, the form of it, 
without leaving room for the collective collaboration of the rest of the artists. Yeah, yeah, that is, that's a great point. And I, I know they refer, or he refers to rehearsals uh, for a couple of different shows in this book, but that's a really good example of, um, I, I mean, he was suffering, I think, from imposter syndrome. He just was like, uh, we're going to get it all done. And I, I, it means I'm going to sacrifice some stuff, but at least it'll look like I know what I'm doing, you know, because on the face of it, if someone went up, if, if someone said, oh, I blocked a Broadway show in one week, that sounds impressive. But if you really think of it from an artist standpoint, it's kind of like you blocked a whole show in one week like that's. Yeah. Where's the where's the table work? Where's the. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I worked on a I worked with a company up in Rhode Island where the director didn't let us get on our feet for three weeks. Now, he was a big Mamet guy and that'll be uh, David Mamet will be a conversation for another podcast another day. Um, but <laughs> he didn't let us get up on our feet for three weeks. And it was like a five week rehearsal process. So we ended up blocking the show in a week. But the amount of connection between us was so strong that it actually worked pretty well. Plus it helped that there was like nothing on the stage. So that's always nice. Um, but, mm -hmm. but that, you know, speed and, and Americans, we are obsessed with churning out plays. Like we are obsessed. Many companies are obsessed. With churning out everything. everything. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as fast as possible, as cheaply as possible. Right. Right. And um, I think sometimes Theater companies can use. I, I'm I'm not accusing all theater companies of doing this. Uh, you know, there are plenty that use it in as artistic a way as possible. But I think sometimes we use the idea of, oh, we're gonna do, uh, we're gonna do a truncated rehearsal process, kind of like they would have done in Shakespeare's day, where there is an artist maybe a side to it, but on the other side, it's like, but then we can churn out this play real fast, you know, and then we'll have a play that we can put in front of an audience. So it's it's a balancing act, I think. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's important that we're not sacrificing the artistry for well, completely at the altar of the capitalist nature of theater in this country. I was going to say that's I think a big reason why we do that is because you know the more weeks that you have um, by equity standards, whatever rate they're paying you they have to pay an extra $200 for health and insurance, um, health and pension. So fiscally, I'm sure many executive directors would love to cut as many weeks of rehearsal as they can. Um, I mean, if you're working an SBT contract, 600 a week, plus health and pension, that's 800 a week per actor, per union actor that you're using. So I see the economic understanding as to why they would make that decision but I think it does affect the art. And there's so many stories in this book about how the Russians have like six months to rehearse a play. And I'm like, God damn, what's that like? Yep. yep. And and uh, I don't I don't want it to sound like I'm completely condemning theaters who do this. Part of the reason that they do this is just like you brought up. If I'm an executive director or a business manager for a theater, I am going to think, well, you know, it, it would be nice to have four months to rehearse a play. You would probably create one of, you know, one of the most in-depth, uh, amazing productions of, I don't know, pick a play, uh, Raisin in the Sun. The Odd Couple. Or what did you, which one did you say? <laughs> the Odd the Couple. The Odd Couple or something <laughs> Can like you that. imagine rehearsing that play for six months? Oh my God, that'd be crazy. But like the... I, there are a lot, I'm sure, who have the intentions, who would love to be able to do that, but because theaters are under such pressure to produce, to keep their doors open, that they, they kind of, some of them are forced to. I mean, I know somebody who said, uh, I can't remember if it was Jack or not, but somebody said, if a, if a theater is doing the complete works of Shakespeare abridged, they are low on money. Like That was Jack. That was Jack. I thought that was Jack. And it's kind of true. Like, that's, I mean, it's that's an easy play or if a theater just wants to do a play of Shakespeare and they want to do something quick it's going to be Mackers or it's going to be Comedy of Errors because they're quick easy to understand you can rehearse them quicker than Hamlet 
or Richard III, depending on the cutting, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, for anyone who's not who doesn't know, the complete work of Shakespeare abridged is a three-hander play where they condense all of Shakespeare's works into like an hour, hour and a half of like just joke after joke after joke. Yeah. So it's a very crowd-pleasing piece, but yeah, totally. It's for Shakespeare festivals, it can be a great money of course. maker. And I think again, it's going back to that economic issue, but also theater, what is this place theater holds in our society? I think it had a different kind of place when this book came out. And now it's very much seen as an extravagance. I mean, living in New York City, $30 tickets, so cheap. Like if I see if I see a show for $30, I am so happy, but the shows that I usually want to see are 100 to $200 to get through the door. And it's like uh oh, there's that's that's a that's a that's a lot. Then if I don't like it, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. And then you know there's a lot of decision making that goes into splurging for that ticket. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah, I think it's just this. You know, I would love it if we just had socialized theater where a lot of the pressure to produce a lot of ticket sales is taken off of you know our artistic endeavors. I think the only way that theater in this country is going to continue moving forward or maybe getting more experimental. And and there are, I know there are companies who are doing this kind of stuff, but like in order to, in order for theater to be sustainable, we need to widen our audience base. In order to widen our audience base, we need to make theater more affordable. That's just the way that's, and that's the way I think it's, it's, it is. And, and I don't think we should just make it, more affordable because it's a nice thing to do theater is good for people like it is um i worked with uh uh, with an actor who's called it an empathy machine and that is Mm. i think one of the things that makes theater so important to the structure of society there was an article that came out saying that an audience's heartbeats will start to sink in the middle of a performance and i just think wow that's amazing that's so to cool. share space with someone to you know to have your heart skip the same beat as someone else that's that's powerful yeah and sometimes i think that we forget how powerful theater can be because we're stressed about you know making sure that we hit our fundraising goals for this year's budget or yeah. we can only hire four equity actors so who's gonna not get a union contract there's just a lot of stuff that i wish that there's a lot of stuff that I wish wasn't as big of a burden. Yeah. But going back to the book. Anyway, back to the book. Holy yeah. man, that was, that. I mean, that was a great tangent. I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, man, I could always drink a bottle of whiskey and like hash this out. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, another thing that I really loved is improvisation. So like, I, I know a lot of people in, in New York, I've met a lot of people who are so averse to doing classical theater because they think it's stuffy and that there are so many rules. And when I tell them that, like, you know, there's room to play, like, you can kind of improv some stuff, their eyes, like, shoot open and they look at me like I'm a mutant. <laughs> but I love the way that they, like, de- define improvisation in this book. Improvisation is control of the scene. So there's a problem. So what are you going to do about it? And as long as you're pursuing that problem, saying the words, you know, doing your job, there's a lot of room to play there. Yeah, yeah, that is, it, it. it's interesting too, because with improvisation, if I remember correctly, he also talked about it, the, the, it's a double-edged sword because you can use it to mine greater depths, but there's also a danger that some actors will use it in order to put their own words and their own attitudes into the, into the character. and it makes them rely on the author's work less. So it's it's one of those things. It's a tool. You know, um, a hammer is great if it's a hammer used for hammering nails, but if you're going to smack someone in the head with it, it's not not good anymore. Unless you mean to. Unless you mean to. (laughs) It'd be an effective (laughs) tool. We are not telling people to murder people. No, no, no. That's not what we promote here on this uh, Rooms and Reckonings podcast. No, no, no. You got to go to... um, uh, a different one like that, like um, Why We Drink, or <laughs> um, what's the Murderino one? I can't remember. That's fun. Now, Murderino. Uh, there's one, oh, there's uh, it, yeah, there's a there's a murder podcast that I I don't or true crime podcast that <laughs> Shannon listens to all the time. I can't remember. Um, 
Dude, that tangent made me think. Um, your note on improvisation yeah. made me think of season one of Slings and Arrows when the movie star gets cast as Hamlet, oh. and like all through the rehearsal process, he's not using Shakespeare's words; <laughs> he's just improving it. He's just screaming. Yeah, yeah, he's it's just so... screaming. Like the scene with Gertrude, he's like, "My uncle, you, <laughs> my uncle," <laughs> and it's just like, "Oh God!" It's a show about a Canadian Shakespeare company. And all of the joys and tribulations, triumphs and failures of running a theater company. And it's oh, a gem. It's, it's such wonderful. a good show. It's so good. You'll see a very young Rachel McAdams on that show. Um, oh. And she is wonderful. She's such a good uh, a good actor. I, I really I love her in that show. I love that whole show. It's so good. Uh, the one thing that I want to lift up from the, from the fourth lecture is the idea that for scene work in classes or workshops or something like that, uh, sometimes rehearsals too, is the desire to just work on the big scenes. That the big scenes immerse us in the, like just, just doing scene work on big scenes immerses us in the idea that small moments or scenes are boring or they're somehow not acting. Um, that the, the every bit of scene that a character is in makes up the character even if they're doing something that seems so mundane or to us maybe boring it it creates the character i mean if you look at waiting for gato on the outset that play seems boring because it's just two dudes waiting and they're doing a lot of mundane stuff uh, and there are, of course, big scenes in that, but there's a lot of little stuff, too. And, and I think it's important for us to focus on, those, on that little stuff um, in, when we are rehearsing or in class or something like that. I just think of when we were rehearsing Henry VI, mm -hmm. and there's so many battles and like kick-ass speeches and murders. But a moment in rehearsal that I loved was... This very small moment, it was um, Richard, not Richard the Third's dad. Yeah, there's like four Richards in that show. Yeah, there is. Um, it was the Duke of York yeah. coming home, mm -hmm. and he just assembles his sons. And on the line, it's, you know, he's just calling his sons to him. There's nothing indicating this. But what we did was we had all of his sons line up military style, and it was such a little detail but it, for me, that completely unlocked what this family was about, their value system, and how the quote-unquote malformed son, Richard, fit in this military family. And how much love that his father had for him. So that way, when Margaret murders his father, the person that loves him most in the world and his moral compass is just gone and opens this floodgate to like this cancer that takes over the country wow first off i'm stealing that if and when i ever play richard and <laughs> that's a great like that's a great it's a great connection to what lewis talks about with the form and imagery and using that on stage and how does that inform the production itself that's a great example of using imagery to create something that the audience can point to and see even if they can't articulate it there's something about it that relates to the play itself i, I think sometimes i i want an audience member to walk away from a production being able to write a 15 page essay on what they saw and breaking down all the imagery but they shouldn't be expected to do that i mean i can't do that most of the time and you know i'm this is what i do but you're pretty brainy yeah it, <laughs> but the even if it's just there, if it's something that they, they can't point to, they might even just say, hey, that was a cool moment. Whatever it is, it's stuck out to them. Mm -hmm. And that would be something that definitely would stick out. I mean, that's, that's a great example. Another thing is, in the book, that he says, workshop training should always be done related to playing and not carried on in an academic vacuum. I'm a big believer in apprenticeships, the Malcolm Gladwell idea that it takes 10,000 hours to master something. To quote Iago 
it shouldn't be all bookish theoric. Think of it as a trade. You get better the more you do it. Less chat, more Matt. Yep, yep. <laughs> so before we move on, uh, anything else for the fourth lecture? We really dove into this. You know, as these lectures continue, they get meatier and meatier. Um, so is there anything else you want to talk about with the fourth one? No, I, um, I'm sure there are things that we're not touching on, but these were the things that jumped out to me that I was interested in most. Awesome. Oh, yeah, we're definitely skimming over this stuff, <laughs> some stuff. But I think the ability to talk about um, just highlighting just one or two things just to give people, again, that taste or just a little bit of guidance, honestly. Um, I, I am not the fastest reader in the world. Um, it can take me a while to really absorb stuff. So if this is another way for people to get information, um, then, you know, we got to hit the high points. And I think uh, I really appreciate the stuff that you're that you're bringing up with these lectures. It also, I think, like we're picking on the same things, but I, I'm, I'm curious how much of that is because we trained with Jack. You know, that's a great that's a great point, um, because there are things that we definitely I remember talking about in graduate school <laughs> and and maybe that's I didn't even think of it that way that the training might be influencing us a little bit but you know grad school was like six years ago now six years old. things have changed well I'm old you're not old come I'm on not a baby anymore you're you're, <laughs> you're you're experienced but you ain't old got that good good skincare well, friends, we have reached the end of the first episode of Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast. This is the end of part one of our talk about Method or Madness. And David and I had so much to talk about that we filled up over two hours of audio. I thought it might be best to break that up into a couple of more manageable chunks. So this week we have part one of Method or Madness and next week part two will come out. So I hope you enjoyed this and that you'll come back next week and join the conversation at Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast. 